0: Brilliant. Thank you, Joe, for leading us again. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our series in the New Testament letter of James. We're going to be reading from James chapter 5, verses 1 through to 12. So if you've got a Bible, uh, please go ahead and, and find that. Uh, as you're finding that, I'm just going to give something of a brief introduction. Now, as we've talked over the last few weeks, uh, hopefully we've seen that the main theme of the book of James is a focus on godly behavior and obedience to the teaching of scripture the word of god the teaching of the bible if you were to distill it down james's essential message is that it should be noticeable that you're a christian it should be observable that following jesus looks like something that it affects your Behavior, your priorities, your decision-making process, how you spend your time, how you interact with other people. In the light of God's love for you, it means loving God and loving others. James in chapter 1 writes, don't merely listen to the word of God, do what it says, live it out. Live in obedience to it. He insists that true religion, religion that pleases God, is care for orphans and widows, those who are vulnerable in society. He says in chapter 2 that faith, which doesn't find its way out in in action, doesn't find its way out in, in your life and your words and your deeds, is futile, it's dead, it's meaningless, it's not true faith at all. He reminds us in chapter 3 that following Jesus should affect our speech, the words we choose when we speak to and about others. And then James concludes chapter 4 by saying that, that anyone who knows the good that they should do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. In other words, if you're a Christian and you don't do what the Bible teaches, that's rebellion against God. That's that's sin for you. It's disobedience to God, a rejection of his plans and his ways, and that is serious. Actually, it reveals that Jesus isn't truly Lord of your life, but instead that you're clinging on for control, that you want to be God is a hard letter there's much that we've looked at over the last few weeks that is challenging that confronts our views and our attitudes and our behaviours and today as we come to the last chapter chapter 5 we're, we're nearing the close of this letter but James has yet more challenge for us. Challenge for me, challenge for you, today. He doesn't put any punches. It contains some of the toughest language in the entire letter. It's pretty confrontational stuff. And as we'll read in a moment, James addresses two groups. One of them may be more comfortable for us to identify with than the other, but I want us to hear the challenge and the encouragement. I want us to hear the challenge and the comfort because I think there are principles applying to both groups that we really need to hear today. So let's read together uh, and then we'll dig in and seek to understand and apply it. We're going to read first up to the end of verse 5 and then we'll work through that and then we'll read the last portion afterwards and seek to unpack that so let's go from chapter 5 verses 1 through to 5 now listen you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Wow. (laughs) You think, steady on James, it's pretty full-on stuff, right? It's it's strong. And in part because it's so strong actually, it's easy for us to uh, uh, kind of push it away and assume it's not for us. But I want to encourage you today, please, please don't make that assumption. You know, I've read lots of people commenting on these passages who, who want to say, you know, actually, James wasn't really writing to the rich here. He was writing about them for the benefit of the poor, uh, actually to encourage the poor to persevere through hardship, knowing that God will judge the rich oppressors and that God is just and will act justly. Here's the problem, though, with that view. The temptation, when we view it through that lens, when we take that stance, is that we distance ourselves from the warning. Because very few think of themselves as rich. In fact, next to nobody really views themselves as rich because there is always someone richer. We compare ourselves to someone who has more than us And we say, well, they're the rich and we are not. And so this can't possibly be about me. This is about them. We read it and instantly try to apply it to someone who is richer than us and believe that this is not for us. Guys, please don't do that today. Let me help you. We live in a global community now, more than ever. The decisions that you make, simple decisions about the coffee you drink or the clothes you purchase, simple, small, daily decisions have a global impact. For you to consider now what it means to love your neighbour actually means considering who your neighbour is, globally. James is warning the rich here, and so I want us to consider in that global perspective where what you do with your money, the decisions you make have a global impact. Let's consider if James might be warning us. Well, World Bank economist Branko Milanovic, what a name, hey, Branko Milanovic, I, I love it. He presented in his 2010 book, The Haves and Have Nots, some statistics about global wealth and poverty. Now, admittedly, it was written 2010, the stats are probably slightly different now, but I would imagine they are not vastly different to his findings in this book. To be in the top half of the globe when it comes to wealth you need to earn just $1,225 per year. That's roughly £975. To be in the top half of the global's wealthiest people. To be in the top 20% it's just $5,000 a year or £3,975, you enter the top 10% with $12,000 or £9,500 per year. This is where it starts to get slightly uncomfortable, right? If you have £9,500 a year, you are in the top 10% Of the world's population when it comes to wealth and this may not apply to all that many of us but I think it shows how stark this is to be in the top 0.1 percent the top 0.1 percent requires an annual income of seventy thousand dollars or fifty five thousand pounds That's staggering, right? The top 0.1%, £55,000. How about some more? Well, according to the UN, nearly half of the world's population, some 2.8 billion people, earn less than £2 a day. According to the World Bank, 95%. 95% 95% of those living in the developing world earn less than £10 a day. So, I guess I want to suggest that in the global scheme you probably count as rich. How about closer to home, in, in this country at this time? Well. In the news this week, we've had Marcus Rashford, haven't we? The England and Manchester United football player successfully campaigning for the provision of free school meals for children in our country whose families are unable to put food on the table. Food poverty is a huge and growing issue in our nation. Since the start of this COVID-19 pandemic, our local food bank here in Wokingham has seen a 400% increase in need. So really, stop and take a minute to consider, is James warning you? And if he is... What are we to do about it? Well, first James warns about a coming judgment. He says to the rich, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you this warning is a warning about the end of the world, it's a warning about Jesus Christ returning to judge the living and the dead and he will judge justly all people. His instruction to weep and wail is to to repent, to realize the seriousness of their situation and to deal with it before God, to put it right, to change. But put what right? I mean, surely this warning can't just be about being wealthy, can it? I mean, surely the very act of having money can't be wrong. I mean, it's being born into a country or into a family, which means that you're rich on a global scale can't be sinful, can it? Well, no. There's nothing wrong with having... Money, but the challenge is this like, boy, oh boy, is it worrying how quickly we can get ourselves into a mess with money. The rich that James writes to are guilty of unhealthy attitudes towards money. He has strong words for those for whom this is the case. He writes, Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you have hoarded wealth in the last days James's charge against these wealthy people and maybe us is that they have hoarded wealth in the last days. What does he mean by that? He means that instead of using their resource to serve and help others, they are selfishly amassing more and more for themselves. And the picture he paints is of these assets, which can't last, that you can't take into eternity with you, that will rot and corrode. He says these assets will act like witnesses in a courtroom when Jesus returns, that those things will be called to bear witness, not to bear witness to what a brilliant life you had, but actually to bear witness against you. James says they will testify against you. They'll be like evidence against you. Proof of your selfishness, proof that you were not about the widows and the orphans, as James wrote in chapter 1, true religion, the care of those vulnerable and in need. They'll stand like evidence against you, proof that actually you didn't really care for others, that you cared primarily about yourself, about laying stuff up, for yourself. This isn't very palatable teaching, is it? And actually James uses even stronger language. In verse five, when he writes, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's again another picture, it's like you've prepared yourself like a well-fed animal ready for slaughter. In other words, ready for judgment. What James is saying to them, and perhaps to us, is you've lost sight of eternity. Instead of investing in heaven by using your resources to bless others and to share the good news about Jesus with others, instead... You're just accumulating stuff for yourself. You're living a life of luxury. You've settled in. This is his accusation. is essentially that they have settled in for the long haul here on earth. You're living a life of indulgence and extravagance while others starve. You're so busy grasping for more and more now, holding tight to what the world has to offer you that you are losing your grip. On what really counts. This picture is that you've worked and set yourself up for a comfortable life here on earth and that's not what a believer in Jesus Christ is called to. Jesus' call to his people is to prepare them for eternity with him to store up treasures in heaven All around us, we're bombarded with the message that we need more. That if we have this or that, it will fulfill us, bring us satisfaction. And that cycle never ends, does it? Money, possessions, they never truly satisfy the way they promise to. There's always more. These things can't satisfy you. And they certainly can't save you. In fact, James says, they will testify against you that your security was in the wrong place and that you cared for yourself and not others. (laughs) And yet even knowing that, it's amazing how attached we become to material possessions. A couple of years ago, I had a really stark reminder of this for myself. I would have said that I had a pretty healthy relationship with stuff, that we practiced generosity as a family, that we looked for opportunities to use what we had to bless others. But then this happened. I sold a guitar we decided that the money tied up in this guitar that I owned could be better used elsewhere than sat in a case in a cupboard to be occasionally used. It was a nice guitar. I'd owned it for 15 years. I'd played it a lot, an awful lot. It was a really nice guitar. And I found selling it incredibly difficult. In fact, I, I scared myself. Genuinely scared myself with how emotional I got at watching the guy walk out of our house, the, the, the person who'd purchased it, pick it up in its case and walk out of our house with it. I, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, even saying it now, that just sounds kind of laughable, but it actually served as a real wake-up call to me about my relationship with stuff but I can find myself clinging on to material things far too tightly and God graciously used it actually to remind me again to to hold much more loosely to the resources that he's given us to see them as as exactly that as resources to be used for the good of others And the glory of God are not things to make my life more comfortable. These verses should get us thinking, am I too attached to things? Am I just doing what I can to make my life as comfortable as possible without regard for others? Does it really make sense to be storing up more and more for the future of me and my children and my grandchildren when there are people starving today? When there are people yet to hear the gospel today? So remember James has just said at the end of chapter 4, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know there'll be a tomorrow. <laughs> and yet we hoard our stuff for tomorrow. We, we save away for a rainy day. We <laughs> He carries on right at the end of chapter 4. But when you know there's something good you could do and you don't do it, that is sin for you. When James talks about wealth rotting and corroding and testifying against us that our priorities are all wrong he is just echoing the words of Jesus we read in Matthew 6 Jesus said this do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God and money, the familiar words, right? We've read it, we've heard it, we know it and yet so quickly we can fall into it. In Luke 12, uh, 16 to 21, Jesus tells a parable about a man who found that whilst he had plenty stored up in this life, plenty put away for a rainy day when it mattered most, He was totally bankrupt. We read this, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now there are probably a number of answers to that question. (laughs) You could give some away to neighbours that are in need. That may be one thing you could do when you have more than you need. You can maybe find out if your neighbouring farmer had a crop that failed that year, and out of your abundance, you could bless him, perhaps that's not what he did, (laughs) we read on, then he said, this is what I'll do, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So how then do we store up treasure in heaven rather than here on earth? What does it mean for us to be rich toward God? Storing up treasure in heaven first and foremost means treasuring, prizing, valuing Jesus above all else. And in response to his grace and his love, loving him and loving others, living to please him. Storing up treasure in heaven means living to please God here and now. Storing up treasure in heaven means being generous and serving God by serving others. When no one else sees and no one gives you praise for it, because God sees and God knows. And when he returns, he'll say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. You'll hear a lot of talk about being sensible, being a good steward and saving up to provide for your future and for your children. It sounds sensible. It sounds wise. It sounds good. And and I'm not necessarily saying doing those things is bad or wrong, but it might be. For starters, actually, you'd be hard-pressed to find it in the Bible. Yes, the Bible talks a lot about being a good steward of the resources God gives us, but I think God's idea of responsible stewardship is often quite different to ours. The Bible does talk about leaving an inheritance for your children, but actually primarily it's about leaving a spiritual inheritance. And so I guess I want to ask, are you teaching them to find their hope in money or their hope in Jesus? Do you expend more time and energy in helping your children gain what they can't lose, eternal life with God, or what they can't keep, property and possessions? I'm not saying it's wrong to help your children financially in the future or even now. Please don't hear what I'm not saying but I am saying that in the context of eternity this life is just a breath and in the economy of heaven your savings account might not be as wise as your financial advisor says it is please make sure you're investing in the right thing The early church clearly got this. You can read in Acts 2 that they had a pretty radical attitude when it came to money and actually the extent of their generosity and their taking to heart this kind of teaching was that there was none amongst them in need. Now this isn't legalistic, it's not kind of setting out rules about what is or isn't extravagant or a life of luxury. I'm not even going to begin to presume to tell you what is or isn't an appropriate use of your finances. It's not kind of like, well, I mean, you can spend this much on a t-shirt, but if you spend that much, I mean, that's just really lavish. And that is just, you shouldn't be doing that. It's not about that. It's not a legalistic tick box exercise. This is about... Your heart. And you know your heart. You know your relationship with stuff. Are you longing for the accumulation of stuff here and now? Or are you longing for the return of the king? Which fills you with greater hope. Your next paycheck or the prospect of Christ Jesus returning in glory. Jesus came and showed us a better way. The gospel comes against self-centeredness and self-indulgence, and Jesus was the ultimate example of this. James says, your wealth stored up as your security instead of finding your security in God, will testify against you. That your hope was in money and not in God. That you used your resources selfishly instead of serving others. That's what he's saying here. And in verse 4, he adds to it saying that, not only that, but also the cry of those you have overlooked, the cry of those who you have failed to help, the cry of those who you have hurt and oppressed will speak out against you. Your your amassed wealth, that if you place your hope there instead of in God, your the, the, the way you've accumulated for your own comfort instead of seeking to meet the needs of others, that will testify against you and that will be compounded by the cry of those Poor and needy, those widows and orphans who you have failed to love and care for will also speak against you. Says in verse 4 Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mow your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty if you've defrauded someone, if you've withheld money from someone, if you've been dishonest with finances, James says you haven't got away with it. God knows. God hears. It's a stark warning to the rich. But it's also a great encouragement to the poor. Your cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, who is just and will return to judge the living and the dead. What then about those who have been defrauded, oppressed and wronged? Well, James writes, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James is basically saying if you are a Christian who has been wronged or hurt or oppressed by someone inside or outside of the church, be patient. The Lord will return soon. And when he comes, he will righteously judge everyone and when he does he will vindicate you but be careful because he'll judge you also so watch what you say and what you do be patient in your affliction, and make sure that your words and actions are godly don't be tempted to to speak out in an unhelpful way don't don't be tempted to slip into gossip or slander don't look to tear down others the apostle paul put it this way in romans chapter 12 verse 19 do not take revenge my dear friends but leave room for god's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge i will repay says the lord You know, the New Testament contains over 300 references to the return of Christ. That's one every 13 verses. He's coming back. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. In fact, if he were not coming back to judge the living and the dead, then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, live to to squeeze out of life the most pleasure that you can. Squeeze the last drop out of everything and everyone. Take it all in for your pleasure and enjoyment. But if he is coming back to judge the living and the dead, which he is, then we read this. Stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. You see the glorious hope of the Christian is that Jesus will return one day to judge the living and the dead and therefore no one gets away with anything in the end. No one gets away with anything. Sin has either been dealt with justly by Jesus at the cross, either Jesus has borne the wrath of God against your sin at the cross and there is forgiveness and freedom and hope, or for those who have not put their hope in Christ, for those who have lived in rebellion and rejection of God, Well, it will be dealt with at the end of time. And there will be just and righteous judgment and punishment. No one gets away with anything in the end. It's either dealt with at the cross of Christ, or it will be dealt with when he returns to judge. there's no sin in being wealthy there's no sin in having money in the bank and food on the table but what you do with what you have will speak either for or against you when you come before the judgment seat of God who is just and if you've been dealt with unjustly don't seek revenge be patient Take heart, stand firm and know that God who is just will judge. I want to encourage you as we conclude now to respond to what you've heard today and what you've heard over the past weeks. See, the bottom line of this whole letter is all about who is Lord of your life? Who's in control? Where is your hope? James spends this letter finding different ways of saying if you've surrendered your life to God if you've entered into a living relationship with him through Christ Jesus if you have put your hope in Jesus and surrendered to him as Lord then your life will reflect that truth. You'll put others first. You won't seek revenge. You'll care for the poor and marginalised. You'll spend your money in a way that reflects your priorities and where your hope rests. You'll speak well of others, not partaking in gossip. The challenge of the book is that if your life doesn't reflect that, then you're clinging on to the lordship of your life. And your faith, James insists, is futile. If your life doesn't reflect that, then you need to come to him to confess your sin, confess that you've been trying to maintain control of your life, confess that you've been trying to keep living your way instead of his and as you do, know that he's faithful to forgive as we talked about a few weeks back, that there is more grace. I wanna give you an opportunity to respond right now, to come back to him, to say, Lord, I'm, I'm wanting to surrender to your will, to go your way. Teach me to have your priorities. Teach me to, to hold on loosely to the things that you've given me teach me to use the resources that you've given me for the good of others and your glory if you know that you need to surrender to Jesus as Lord to say to him your will and your way I'm trusting you to save me I'm not looking to anyone or anything else then I want to encourage you to do that today don't put it off to another time do it today It might be for the first time or it might be something you've done before. Do it today. If you're with someone watching this and you know you need to respond, why don't you ask them to pray with you as you respond today?